Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from the New York Stock Exchange, I'm Paula Newton sitting in for Julia Chatterley. And here's what you need to know. Gone but not forgotten, Interpol issues a red alert for former auto executive Carlos Ghosn. Breaking it in, President Trump's campaign fundraising blows the Democrats out of the water. And an AI breakthrough we're going to tell you about. Google Health says its system has detected breast cancer better than six of the best doctors. It's Thursday, and this is First Move. Welcome to the show. Welcome to 2020. Yes, a new decade. It is great to have you with us as we begin our first move of 2020. Global stocks and a strong run, of course, in 2019. Who could forget it? And yet we're already moving on, right? It is looking like a nice start to the new year as well. U.S. stocks are set to rally more than half a percent in early trading today after posting their best year of return since 2013. This is the thing, though. Every sector in the S&P 500 finished the year with gains, and that's the first time that that's happened since 2010. Tech stocks, no surprise, look set for the largest gains of this session today. Now, China helped jumpstart that global rally. The benchmark Shanghai Composite finished the session up 1.1 percent after the Chinese central bank announced a fresh round of stimulus relief, right? We'll have more on that in just a few minutes. Chinese factory numbers out today, meantime, remain encouraging too. Surprising to some, a private survey showed manufacturing activity dipping a bit last month, but firmly in expansion territory. Business confidence rose as U.S.-China trade tensions eased. Now, European stocks are solidly higher as well. You see them there. French stocks are the best performers. As you see, the CAC is up about 1.2%. The closely watched stocks, uh, 600 European index is coming off the best gain in drumroll, please, a full decade. We'll be following all the action in the markets throughout the hour, and it is an all-important hour today, as as we said, the first trading day of 2020. We want to bring begin, though, with our drivers, with the latest on that Carlos Ghosn investigation. Now, reports just out in Lebanon say the government has received an Interpol arrest warrant for Carlos Ghosn. Now, the former Nissan chairman arrived in Lebanon on Tuesday after jumping bail in Japan where he was awaiting trial. Meanwhile, police in Turkey have detained seven people, including four pilots and a private airline, on suspicion of helping Gon escape. Ghul Tsuz now is live for us in Istanbul with the latest. Uh, I mean, Ghul, look, the plot thickens here. Turkey is demanding answers. We now have this Interpol alert. Do officials there have any idea how Turkey was implicated in all of this and where they go from here? So far, 
what Turkey has said is that it has launched an investigation. The Istanbul prosecutor's office has uh, is looking into it now, and they have detained seven people, as you mentioned, four of them pilots. One is a manager at a private aviation company, as well as two ground staff uh, service workers. So the Istanbul police now is going to be going through their testimony, trying to piece together what happened. And what we know about this mystery, this puzzle, is that there was a flight that took off from Osaka, Japan, and landed in Istanbul. A little while later, another flight took off from Istanbul and went to Beirut. That all coinciding with the timeline of Gon's uh, mysterious disappearance uh, back to Beirut. And the Istanbul police now are trying to figure out what happened on the ground in Istanbul's Atatürk airport. That's not Istanbul's main international airport. It was decommissioned just a while ago and now only services cargo planes and private jets like the one that Gon is suspected of having fled on. Maybe some of the testimony that the Turkish police gather from these seven detained uh, suspects will shed light on the mystery of what's happening. And the international, uh, the Interpol, the red notice that has been issued is basically uh, going to make it uh, a bit more of an international issue for Gon, but there is no extradition between Lebanon and Japan. So the likelihood of, of him being returned to Japan is very low. And that Interpol red notice, of course, is just a request to international law enforcement, and it's not an order. So what will happen, what will come out of that is something we just don't know at this point. What we do know that here in Turkey, at least, one small part of the puzzle now is in the hands of the Istanbul police, and perhaps they will be able to shed some light on how Gon got away. And it's clear, Gul, that certainly Gon thinks he's free and clear now, especially as he remains in Lebanon. He will likely speak to the media in the next few days, but in the meantime, the Japanese are trying to piece this together as well. So embarrassing for them, considering this was supposed to be a man who was under surveillance. Absolutely. I mean, this is quite an embarrassment for the Japanese. This was a very high-profile individual for them. And their legal system was working to basically bring him to justice. And instead of that happening, he's now fled in this audacious escape. And we don't have a lot of answers for it. But Gon is expected to speak. And so far, what he said has been very, very critical of the Japanese justice system. He's called it uh, rigged. He said that it's discriminatory. So all in all, a very embarrassing uh, moment for Japan. And at this point, now that he's in Lebanon, there isn't much that they can do to bring this man to justice in front of their own legal system. Yeah, no, in fact, uh, going very confident that he will remain free. Uh, Ghoul, thanks so much for that update. Appreciate it. To China now, where they are taking steps to address the slowing growth by pumping more than $100 billion into the financial system. Now it comes amid fears about faltering growth, of course. We've been talking about that for months and shows how the country's leaders are watching out for a slowdown. Christine Romans has been following this also for several, mm. mo several months. Happy New yeah. Year to you, Christine. You too. You and, too, Paula. And, and an interesting move, right? And maybe even taking a, a page from the Fed in the United States in terms of being proactive. But the question I have for you is, will this be enough? 
Well, you know, and there, there are many people who think there will be more after this, maybe different kinds of stimulus. I mean, what you have here is essentially the People's Bank uh, of China is saying uh, to company or to, to banks, rather, that they can increase their lending by $115 billion, injecting that liquidity essentially into the financial system just before uh, the Chinese New Year when you have all these people giving cash gifts, right? So that keeps the money kind of flowing uh, around. And, and essentially the rule here is lowering the amount of uh, capital reserves that banks have to have by law. So it frees up a little more, a little more money. That's exactly what the United States has been doing in different ways uh, uh, for the past, uh, you know, well, the past decade, but more, more recently, even last year, like beefing up its, um, its balance sheet. That, that's something that um, is clearly supportive to the economy. Uh, the other thing is that, obviously, we keep looking to China to see how its economy is doing. Yeah. The second largest economy in the world hinges on a lot of different things. Christine, I'm asking you, I'm begging you, is 2020 the year that we can stop talking about the U.S.-China trade war? We get no. this signing that the president no. announced in the middle of <laughs> January. Okay, let me know. Look, it's a truce. I mean, I think this signing, when it happens in January, if it happens in January, this is a truce in the trade war. It's not a resolution, really, of the really tough parts of the trade war. I mean, look, the Chinese are going to buy some more farm goods. They're going to allow for some liberalization, maybe some enforcement of some of these mechanisms. But the big, huge problem that the president uh, so rightly identified and that so many business leaders have been complaining about for years is the whole China Inc. thing, the state-owned enterprises, the subsidies uh, for the big important parts of the Chinese economy that is, uh, the Americans say, is, is unfair to the United States. That hasn't even been touched yet, right? So that's still got to happen. You know, the president said that he will sign something with high-level Chinese delegation in Washington on January 15th and that he will travel to Beijing at a later date. So you're going to have no, we're not going to stop talking about it. We're going to be talking about when is he going? Is he going? Will he go? Who is he going to meet? What are they going to probably uh, try to do next? And will it be phase two and then phase three or maybe phase four? Because um, there's a really a lot of work still to be done on trade between the U.S. and China. It, yeah, and interesting that you brought up the farmers there. Going into an election here, year yeah. here in 2020, and the farmers have really been suffering. That will also play out. Christine Romans, thanks again. Appreciate Happy it. Happy New Year. <laughs> Now, staying on China, it appears to be using access to its financial markets as a political lever. Reuters says Beijing has suspended a project linking the Shanghai and London stock exchanges. Sources say political tensions over Hong Kong are behind this move. Uh, Matt Egan joins me now. This is an incredibly striking report from Reuters. If true, it's economic retaliation. It's being used as a political weapon. Why is it significant? Well, Paul, it's also more evidence of how businesses are getting caught in the middle of this Hong Kong protest. And it really shows how China is not afraid to strike back financially when it feels like it's been wrong. Now, as you mentioned, Reuters is reporting that China has uh, reportedly halted these planned cross-border listings between London and Shanghai. And they're citing sources that say politics are to blame, specifically Britain's stance on the Hong Kong protest. Now, if you're not familiar with it, the, uh, the Shanghai London Stock Connect was unveiled last year as a way to um, give more liquidity to Chinese shares, um, letting UK investors get access to them and vice versa. Um, so this news, if it's true, if it's confirmed, um, would really deal a blow to efforts to try to forge closer ties between 
the U.K. and China, um, particularly at a time when Britain is planning to leave the EU and is really looking for some trade wins. Um, but, you know, it's also a potential negative for China's efforts to try to open up their capital markets because this um, Stock Connect was a way to give more diversity both to Chinese companies who want to have a broader investor base, but also for Chinese investors who want to be able to invest in things more than just the domestic China stock market. Um, you know, there's also other news about uh, another company that is facing some pressure related to the Hong Kong protests, and that's HSBC. Um, there's been news that pro-democracy protesters in Hong Kong have attacked HSBC branches, as well as a pair of bronze statues um, outside of HSBC's Hong Kong headquarters. Now, keep in mind, HSBC is the largest bank in Hong Kong. It's been there for more than 150 years. But the protesters accused the bank of really working with the Chinese authorities to stifle some of the fundraising. Um, now, HSBC has denied those charges, and they've condemned what they call as acts of vandalism. But I think, Paula, all of this is just another reminder of the really, really tricky geopolitical environment facing multinational companies as we kick off 2020. I mean, whether it's the U.S.-China trade war, which you were just talking to Christine about, or if it's the turmoil in the Middle East, Brexit, or, of course, the Hong Kong protest, it is not an easy time to be a multinational company. Yeah, and you're right to point out that, of course, this also hurts Chinese companies. Uh, Matt Egan, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Thank you, Paul. Now uh, we go. Oh, and Happy New Year. Matt, I forgot to wish you a Happy New Year. So there you go. <laughs> These are the stories making headlines around the world. Now, the Australian state of New South Wales has declared a state of emergency as deadly bushfires ravage the region. All visitors have been urged to leave before Saturday. Authorities are saying temperatures above 40 degrees, 40 degrees Celsius, and ferocious winds are expected at the weekend, increasing the risk of more fires. Our Anna Korn reports. This is what a mass evacuation looks like. Thousands and thousands fleeing the areas worst hit by the deadly bushfires that have swept across the southeastern coast of Australia. A mandatory evacuation for tourists before catastrophic conditions return on Saturday. But some want to head the opposite way. My daughter's stuck down to Sussex with uh, some friends down there. Trevor Garland's 16-year-old daughter Hayley is stranded in one of the hardest-hit regions with some friends. She told him she's safe, but he's not taking any chances. Been here for quite a while trying to see if I can get down there to get her out. But I'm a bit worried because it's one road in, one road out. It's dangerous, but Trevor is not alone. So at the moment, we're just focused on trying to get the family back together. Xanthia Walsh and her family were away when fire struck the family home in Conjola, three hours south of Sydney. They all escaped unharmed, but their house was completely destroyed. It was a family effort to build the house, so it's hit a lot of people quite hard. It used to be a holiday house prior to us living in it, so all of our families stayed in there at some point or another. Walsh and Garland are but two of the many stuck around and inside some of the areas hardest hit by bushfires across the states of Victoria and New South Wales. Dozens of roads have been cut off and some communities remain isolated. Stranded residents dependent on the Australian military for the most basic of supplies. It's part of the Australian government's efforts to deal with the crisis, but for some it's too little too late. The Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, who has been heavily criticised for his lack of leadership during this crisis and his government's inaction on climate change, was heckled by residents during a visit to Cabago. Yeah, we're getting any bites down here, buddy. 
A large part of the town was destroyed during the New Year's Eve bushfires and residents say the government has not done enough. This is not fair. We are totally forgotten about down here. The Prime Minister left without responding. Conditions have improved slightly in the past few days, allowing the countless men and women who continue to battle the flames a temporary but very limited reprieve and just enough time to say goodbye to one of their own. Firefighter Geoffrey Keaton was honoured for his bravery at his funeral, the medal given to his young son. Just one of the many victims of a nightmare with no end in sight that is expected to worsen in the coming days. Anna Corrin, CNN, Nowra, Australia. To India, now where one firefighter has died and many others are injured in India after a battery factory collapsed in New Delhi Thursday. They were battling a massive fire inside that building when it gave way. This is the third major fire in the Indian capital in less than a month. Cleanup efforts are underway at the U.S. Embassy in Iraq following violent protests. Iraqi security forces have now regained control of the area after hundreds of protesters stormed the embassy in Baghdad. U.S. airstrikes against Iranian-backed militia targets sparked those protests. Okay, still to come here on First Move, trumped U.S. Democratic hopefuls kick off their election year with their latest fundraising stats. But the president's money machine is also picking up steam and a 2020 vision from Big Blue. You're going to want to hear this. IBM gives us its predictions for the year ahead. Welcome back. Uh, I am live at the New York Stock Exchange, and this is First Move, the first edition for 2020. We are awaiting uh, that bell, that opening bell uh, here at the New York Stock Exchange. I'm going to remind you, though, that stocks finished 2019, trading just a bit below those all-time highs. But Wall Street futures are looking strong right now, right across the board. And we could, in fact, hit fresh record highs in early trading today. For 2019, here's where you need your recap. All the major averages finished with gains of more than 20 percent. The Nasdaq, the best performer, rising 35 percent. The strong gains may be hard to duplicate this year, but we will get to that. This is what's interesting here, though. The Fed looks likely to keep rates on hold. Trade tensions, though, haven't disappeared, right? We were just talking about that with Christine Romans. And don't forget, we, of course, have the big race in 2020. Working through it with us is John Petrides. He joins me now to take a look at the year ahead. You are, in fact, the portfolio manager at Talkville Asset Management. Thanks for being here. Really appreciate it. And happy new year to you. you. So we were just talking about the extraordinary year that was 2019. Let's talk valuations, because when I look at this market, I think, look, these are high. These are sky high. I'm in nosebleed territory here. Should you be more defensive? Well, I wouldn't go that far that we're in nosebleed, but we are clearly elevated from where we have been over the last 10, 15, 20 years. So, and when you look at it in context of where we are from interest rates and inflation, it makes sense that stocks would outperform because interest rates are so low, you can't get yield on bonds, and inflation is tame, so go where there's growth. And that's what's been pushing stocks higher. Um, but we're nowhere near 99. Right? But we're at the same time, we're not near table pounding cheap of 2008 or 2009 or even, you know, where we were in the fourth quarter of 2018 just a year ago, right? Which is why you saw this massive rally. Um, In terms of the political risk, and we have to talk about that, we're going into 2020. The the market seems to be blowing off a lot of political risk right now. Do you think that'll continue through this race? 
Well, it all depends, I think, on who the Democratic candidate is to run up against Donald Trump. If it is someone more further to the left, like Elizabeth Warren or uh, or Bernie Sanders, right? They have been very vocal against anti-big business. So I think stocks would react negatively if they picked up steam as the Democratic candidate. If it is a Trump versus Biden, I think the market takes it in stride. To be honest, you with think you. takes it in stride regardless, even though they are talking about perhaps not. I mean, Donald Trump is talking about tax cuts 2.0. Oh, this right. market will go crazy if that happens. Yeah, clearly. That, that, I mean, Trump has been pro-business. He's been uh, blowing more uh, more fire into fueling the consumer. That's all good things to push stocks higher. Now, he's doing it on the back of levering up the U.S. economy. You do have $22 trillion in debt. I'm glad and, somebody finally mentioned this, John. And, no one seems concerned and, about and, this. And to, fund, and, to fund a, uh, and to fund another tax cut, you're going to have to take on more debt to do that, which is clearly scary. Debt is never a very good thing, mm-hmm. particularly when you're an economy. It's only growing at about 2%. Um, but uh, right now, um, you know, the market seems to be kicking that can down the road and we'll deal with that if and when that comes home through. Do you, do you feel, though, that at some point in time in that summer into early fall season that people will get really defensive and just stay on the sidelines? It, it, I mean, I, it's hard to say right now. There's so many factors. Um, let, let's take things into consideration. China is clearly the last couple of weeks, they cut interest rates last night to push their economy. They've done a stimulus package. They just announced a couple of weeks ago to increase their economy. We're seeing progress on the trade war. If something derails that, right, China is now the, the, the driving engine of, of the entire global economy. So let's let's keep a focus on that. And then, you know, unless something were to change with the impeachment, you know, Trump was impeached, the market rallied, you know, on the back that he's not going to get on the back that Hard he's not going to get convicted. So assuming that story holds true, then uh, again, you could see another good year for sure. Yeah, it's interesting how politics becomes benign in that atmosphere. As you said, impeachment and still this market never flinched. But I do think the end result of the market is going to be told the November, December of the year after we get the results or assuming the results of the election look uh, look clear. And let's move to the Fed, really the hero of 2019. I, I mean, Jay Powell came in, seemed to really calm all fears down, did what he had to do. We're on hold, right, as far as the Fed is concerned? As long as the data provides that that's the case, as long as wage uh, inflation stays contained, uh, the Fed feels comfortable between one and a half to 1.75 percent interest rates. But that doesn't mean the Fed won't do quantitative easing. They may not lower interest rates, but they could buy more assets and start increasing the asset purchases on their balance sheet, which they leveled off aggressively from 2016. So they can inc- enact silent QE to, to stimulate markets further. And you think when Jay Powell says that he's data dependent, you think that's what he's talking about? Uh, he will look at that and, and expand the balance sheet if he has to. The first Friday of every month when we get the jobs data, he's looking at wage growth. And if wage growth stays contained, that's the one major inflation data point that he's focused on. Why do you think that has been contained? It surprised me that uh, that kind of, there's been some growth for sure, absolutely, but that wage inflation has not ticked up even as we have seen a historically extraordinary job market here in the United States. Yeah, I think, I mean, we were, what, two and a half percent in terms of wage growth just two years ago. Now we're around three percent. So it has gone higher. Uh, a lot has been blamed on labor force participation over the last decade out of the crisis has been significantly lower than in the past. It has been a conundrum that has befuddled many economists and many financial strategists uh, for the past 10 years because you would figure at a 3.5%, 3.4% unemployment rate that the supply of labor has been tighter. That should drive wages higher. You know, let's see what the data provides. Um, in terms of your posture going into 2020, you the instinct is to be more defensive. You've had these extraordinary gains from 2019. What would you say to people? You'd say, like, ride this out. If you stay on the sidelines, if you move to cash or whatever else, you're saying that's a bad move? Yeah, I, I mean, we just learned that if you had the cash the fourth quarter of 2018, look what you missed, right? So making extreme bets at this point in the cycle of 
I got to be all stocks or I have to be all bonds or I have to be all cash, I think is a mistake. I think it's important that uh, investors really take a, a good snapshot of who they are and what their goals are and diversify their portfolio across stocks, bonds, and cash. However, we would overweight stocks relative to bonds and we'd be fully invested at this point in time. And, it's, and within the stock portion, focus on international. We think international value is significantly more compelling relative to the S&P. And if all the measures that the Chinese economy is taking, that should drive global GDP growth higher, which makes international stocks attractive. Investors have been disappointed by that international profile before. You think 20, I mean, it wasn't bad in 2019, yeah. but you think this will be the year? Well, clearly the monkey wrench had been trade tariffs in 2018 and sure. 19, which has taken some of the steam out of, uh, out of the international markets. Remember, in 2018, the U.S. was raising rates, which forced more people to go into dollar-denominated assets. And let's not forget all the issues going on in the eurozone last year. I mean, at one point in time, we had about $20 trillion of global debt with a negative yield, which is unbelievable, right? So I, we would expect that a little bit to come off the top on the dollar. Right. dollar would come off so international, which would be helpful. So that, that's where we're finding a bit more compelling value today. Gotcha. John, thanks so much, uh, and Happy New Year again. Thank you so much for having me on. And here on First Move, we are ready for 2020. We will have that opening bell to you in just a moment. Stay with us. Welcome back to First Move. This is now 2020 on the trading day. I am live from the New York Stock Exchange, and we are waiting to see what this new year and new decade brings when the last year was oh so good for investors. As expected, U.S. stocks are picking up right where they left off in December. We are in rally mode. All the major averages are on the rise. Tech stocks, again, the best gainers there. Stocks are coming off the best year since 2013. The S&P 500 hit a total of 35, 35 people, record highs last year alone. European stocks, meantime, are also rallying this year. French stocks currently up about 1.2%. The others up about 1% on their own. In Asia, the Shanghai Composite rallied after the Chinese central bank announced a new round of badly needed stimulus. Now we want to take a quick check of those global movers. Apple, the best gainer on the Dow in 2019, is higher in early trading. Apple rallied an astounding... 86 percent in 2019. It was also the best performing FANG stock by far. Tech analyst Gene Munster says Apple's share price could climb another $100 this year. He says the company's valuation, he says, he claims, is still low compared to other tech firms. Tesla, an analyst, is now higher on the research firm Canaccord raised the 2020 Tesla price target to $515 today. He says the trend toward electric cars will accelerate this year. Tesla shares came under pressure, you'll remember, earlier this week on concerns over its upcoming Q4 delivery numbers. And remember, if you're going to meet that demand, that's the only way you are going to meet that revenue target. An analyst, meantime, at Evercore is downgrading the Ford shares right now to underperform. Why? He says it faces limited upside potential this year. And meantime, Tiffany shares also flat. Reports say Warren Buffett did have a chance to put a bid on the luxury jeweler back in the fall, but yep, turned them down. And Tiffany ultimately agreed to be bought out by LVMH for 16 
billion. Now I want to give you some news just into CNN. Uh, the U.S. Democratic presidential race has just narrowed. Uh, Julian Castro has announced his decision to suspend his campaign. Uh, he did so via Twitter. But we have some news also to bring you on those who remain in the campaign. Bernie Sanders is leading the field among Democratic hopefuls for fundraising in that all-important fourth quarter going into those primaries. The Vermont senator raised more than $34.1 million for his campaign for the party's nomination. Compare that to Pete Buttigieg, who raised 24.7, still impressive, and Andrew Yang with $16.5 million. Come November, one Democrat will be up against President Trump. And get this, that campaign machine raised $46 million in the last quarter alone. Ryan Nobles is going through the numbers for us. Uh, Ryan, Happy New Year and good to see you. I want to talk about those Democratic numbers, surprising to some, right? Yeah, you know, Paula, we still have uh, two big campaigns that have yet to report yet, uh, Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden. But you'd be hard-pressed to imagine that either of them are going to top this eye-popping number that Bernie Sanders and his campaign reported early this morning. Uh, $34.5 million uh, is just a massive number by any stretch of the imagination. I mean, you compare it uh, to Pete Buttigieg. uh, We saw his number on New Year's Day at 24.7. Everybody was very impressed by that number. And then Sanders goes and bests it by almost $10 million. And what's been remarkable, uh, Paula, about Sanders' rise is that each quarter he continues to add to that total. He's raised $96 million total since the start of his campaign last year, and he's done it without uh, begging uh, for money from any of these wealthy donors that often fund these American presidential campaigns. This is largely funded by small-dollar online donations. They've had more than 5 million individual contributions to his campaign. And this is another amazing statistic, Paula. 99.9% of Bernie Sanders contributors have yet to reach their maximum donation threshold of $2,800, which means they can continue to flood his campaign with these small dollar donations uh, for the foreseeable future. So uh, this shows a a remarkable amount of stability for the Sanders campaign and the resources that he's going to need to get those caucus goers out of their homes and into those gymnasiums and, and auditoriums. Uh, the first week in February uh, to say that they're going to support Bernie Sanders. Uh, if you never, if you didn't think Bernie Sanders had a legitimate shot at winning Iowa, now's the time to start coming around to that way of thinking, Paula. Yeah, I mean, look, so many people still f- feeling the burn, right? And this means yeah. that man can stay in this race as long as he likes. Ryan, I have to ask you, though, about those eye-popping uh, Republican numbers as well. Of course, it's President Trump. Those numbers are eye-popping. But the RNC, mm-hmm. the Republican Party has been really touting these numbers because it gives them so much fundraising momentum going into Senate and congressional races. Yeah, you can't really compare the Republican numbers to the Democratic numbers, right? Because the the Democratic uh, donation is spread across so many different candidates where everything on the Republican side is focused on President Trump. But it is hard to ignore the amount of money that he's raised. $46 million in the fourth quarter is very impressive. You combine that with the the numbers raised by the RNC, they're well over $140 million uh, combined. He has uh, somewhere in the range, uh, he's raised more than $200 million, and they have somewhere in the range of $140 million in the bank. Listen, President Trump is going to be well-funded heading into this general election campaign. And, you know, that's the argument that a lot of these Democratic candidates have been making, in particular Pete Buttigieg, about this purity test that some of these Democrats have set for themselves. Like, Bernie Sanders is never going to ask for money from high-dollar funders. He's not going to ask people to bundle money for him. Uh, He's not going to take money from big corporate super PACs. He doesn't want a super PAC supporting his campaign. President Trump doesn't care about any of that. He'll take any any, uh, level of donation that someone can 
and give to him. And there are some Democrats concerned that perhaps they go into this campaign without the necessary arsenal uh, that is needed to beat Donald Trump. Uh, Sanders believes that he can do it without that. Uh, you know, we're not going to really know how this shapes up uh, until the Democratic primary process is over. Yeah, and we have to remind everyone how important those numbers are. Leon Castro just jumped uh, out of the race. Uh, likely, obviously, he would have stayed in, right? I mean, money yeah. is part of the equation when someone like that has to move on and jump yeah. out. Paula, we need to be clear about this. You do not drop out of a race for president because of your polling numbers. You drop out of a race for president because you no longer have the financial resources necessary to continue your campaign. I mean, Kamala Harris, the best example of that. She was polling far ahead of some of these other folks that are are in the race, but she just ran out of money to be able to support the campaign infrastructure that she had in place. Uh, and that's the same thing with Julian Castro here. He, he definitely had uh, you know, a very a small but passionate group of supporters uh, who wanted him to stay in the race, but he just did not have the financial resources necessary. It will be interesting to see what happens to Castro in this race, because even though his support wasn't uh, very uh, wide, it was deep. And he, of course, uh, represents a, a very significant part of the Democratic electorate with the Latino vote. So, uh, you know, Castro uh, is probably still a voice that we will likely hear as this campaign goes on. And I have to imagine that he is on the short list for many of these uh, presidential candidates as a pot potential running mate. Uh, Paula, you know, it's interesting to see this started out as the most diverse Democratic uh, presidential primary field. It has quickly become older and more white the more these candidates drop out. You can bet that whoever emerges as the, the nominee is going to want to show some diversity on the overall ticket. And that's where you could see Castro come back into play later on. Yeah, you make such a good point that we will continue from here from him. And I want to remind everyone as we're here at the Stock Exchange, everything that Ryan talks about will impact this market in one way, shape or form throughout this year. Uh, Ryan, Happy New Year and really appreciate your insights there. Happy Thanks. New Year to you, Paula. Thanks. Now, remembering David Stern, we'll take a look at the legacy of the former NBA commissioner who built the league into a global sporting empire. Welcome back to Sports World is mourning the death of the man who helped make the NBA what it is today. Former Commissioner David Stern passed away on Wednesday at the age of 77. CNN's Corey Wire joins me now live from Atlanta with more on Stern's legacy. And Corey, you know, it's arguable that the NBA is what it is because of David Stern. So many people have been saying that over the last few hours. You only have to look at this one man's career, right? Michael Jordan. <laughs> to right. see what the vision thing meant to this guy, David Stern. Yeah, and Paula, David Stern, he's been described as a revolutionary, as a visionary, and that vision started as a fan of the game, often going to Knicks games with his dad as a kid. He ended up shaping the game he loved, becoming arguably the greatest commissioner in American sport. He took the NBA to unprecedented heights. Several franchises were in financial turmoil when he took over in 1984. The finals, they were played on tape delay after late local news. Can you imagine that? But during a 30-year career as commissioner, Stern presided over skyrocketing growth. According to Forbes, the player's salary cap, which Stern helped create, grew from 3.6 million to just under 59 million when he left office in 2014. Television revenues jumped from around 22 million to around 930 million dollars and values of team franchises from 400 million to 19 billion. A big part of Stern's strategy, Paula, was marketing the league stars like Magic, Larry Bird, Michael Jordan, and making them global icons. The NBA was the first pro sports league, Paula, to play regular season games outside the U.S. 
Yeah, you, you have to give them credit for that because it seems, you know, pretty normal these days. Why wouldn't you do that? But no, at the time, as you point out, it was revolutionary. You know, this is a man who is also incredibly contentious and uncompromising as a leader. You know, he even got you. I found this so funny. He got used to hearing the boos from fans. I mean, this <laughs> right. is a guy who boo, who basically fined Michael Jordan for wearing the wrong shoes. And yet the players still respect him. What are they saying about all this? Yeah, Paul, that's a great point. I mean, this is the man who created dress codes for players. Who's this guy telling me what I can and can't wear? But in the end, he strove for professionalism. The players knew that, and they respected him for it. Tributes came pouring in, Paula. Hall of Famer Michael Jordan said, quote, David had a deep love for the game of basketball and demanded excellence from those around him, and I admired him for that. I wouldn't be where I am without him, unquote. And neither would Magic Johnson. In 1991, He announced that he was HIV positive and was retiring, but a year later, Magic wanted to return to play, and a lot of people thought this was a bad idea, but Stern gathered the facts, talked to experts, and was able to convince players, owners, and even sponsors everything was going to be okay. Johnson tweeted this, Paula. He said, David Stern was such a history maker. When I announced in 1991 I had HIV, people thought they could get the virus from shaking my hand. When David allowed me to play in the 1992 All-Star Game in Orlando and then play for the Olympic Dream Team, we were able to change the world. Uh, Magic's former team, the Lakers, played on Wednesday, and afterwards LeBron James said this about Stern. Him and Dr. James Naismith is two of the most important people for the game of basketball. Um, obviously, Dr. Naismith, because he created the, the game. And then uh, David, his vision, his vision to make this game global. Paula, his grand vision and his globalization of the sport are just instrumental in what the league is today. It allows stars like Giannis Antetokounmpo and Luka Doncic to have the careers they have and for us to have the entertainment value in watching them. Yeah, and a reminder, David Stern always understood that dollars and cents of the game really impacted what could happen on the court in terms of Mm -hmm. how many fans can see it all over uh, the world. Corey, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Now, after the break, using tech to protect us from breast cancer, artificial intelligence is on the horizon, which can equal and even beat, get this, the eyes of experts. All right, we are going to the boardroom brief. Google Health is using artificial intelligence to scan x-rays for signs of breast cancer. In a study published in Nature, the system has proved to be just as good, if not better, than expert radiologists. Breast cancer affects one in eight women globally. And radiologists in the United States reportedly miss a full one-fifth of those breast cancers that are screened with mammograms. CNN's health Jacqueline Howard joins us now. Now, Jacqueline, good to see you. Google has been moving into this health space for quite some time now. Is the idea that this would eventually replace doctors when it comes to screening and diagnosing cancer? Well, you have to keep in mind, mammograms currently are one of the best tools we have to detect breast cancer. And what this new AI tool really helps with is detecting signs of cancer that some doctors can sometimes miss. Now, the tool is based on uh, mammogram images from the U.S. and the U.K., but we have to keep in mind that while this tool did detect signs that some experts missed, 
doctors saw signs that the AI tool missed. We should have an image of that here. You should see, you know, there's an image of a mammogram that the tool was able to detect signs, but then there were mammograms that the doctors missed. So that really helps put in perspective uh, what we're seeing here. And it's exciting, but it comes with limitations. It uh, definitely comes with limitations. And, you know, women live with these facts day in, day out. You get a mammogram, a result back, and you can't really figure out if it is definitive or not definitive. The issue here, will Google, working in concert, or any other AI entity, for that matter, working in concert with doctors, just make it easier to detect, right? Because in any cancer, early detection is key. That's right, Paula. Early detection is key. And what we really think here, this tool will not replace doctors. It really can be a tool that doctors can use to better detect, especially those early signs that you mentioned. And we have to keep in mind, mammograms in general, they're, they're great, but they do come with limitations. We know that about one in five women might have a mammogram where the signs go missed. And, and that's important to keep in mind. Really, this tool helps with early detection, and it also can help us turn around results faster. And that's, that's important, too, especially for patients out there who might have to wait and worry about their results. This tool can help improve the turnaround process as well. Yeah, a, a lot of work to be done there, and certainly any help from technology would be a big help. Jacqueline Howard for us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Now, Google's rival in the artificial intelligence field is IBM. It predicts 2020 will see business adopt AI more widely as it becomes more efficient. Rob Thomas is the general manager of IBM Data and AI. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, Paul. You know, New Year is all about predictions, and yet I have to say I have been stunned at how little of the AI predictions have actually ever come true. <laughs> when we've had them, I've looked back. At them from 2017 and 2018, nothing has ever turned out, not really panned out the way people hoped. I want to ask you though, why are these predictions achieve, achievable this time around in 2020 and why are they even desirable on any level? Yeah, let's talk about what's different. We found three things that were really slowing adoption of AI. It was about data, it was about skills and businesses, and it was about trust. We've made major progress in each of those areas. So if we were sitting here a year ago, we would be talking about AI adoption of five to 10%. We just completed a global survey that yes. says it's up to 40%, which gives me confidence to say we're on our way to 80, 90% in the next couple of years. It doesn't feel like that. And a lot of people have been sitting on the sidelines, terrified that their jobs are gonna be taken away. People are saying that, look, you shouldn't be afraid of AI. Is that, does that still hold true? Because you know that a lot of companies, when they're looking at the bottom line, are looking at AI for precisely that reason, to help out the bottom line. I think we have to be clear on what AI is. AI is not necessarily robots or flying cars. This is about how you make better predictions in your business. How do you optimize your business? How do you drive better outcomes working with your clients? That is very real today. Lufthansa is an example, a client that we announced recently where we are giving their customer service agents sure. superpowers using AI. They've got a small team of data scientists that are helping 15,000 customer service agents. We've done similar with Harley Davidson, who's using AI to predict first time, next time motorcycle buyers. Okay, but just, just because I recently had something with Lufthansa, I see no change. In fact, I see things getting worse whenever Sometimes we talk about invisible. customer service. Sometimes it's invisible to you. So what they're doing is yeah, they're but actually the, the combing through their data. The customer service also seems to be invisible. I mean, look, I don't mean to give everyone a hard time about this. Is that I think out there, people are really looking for the real effects of AI. How will it help my business? How will it help my customers? And a variety of different ways to do that. 
but sometimes it's always a little bit invisible behind the scenes, meaning sometimes it's about, do I understand the data so I can better serve the customer, as an example. Another example I'd give you is Carefor, a retailer in France, sure. where we're using AI with them so they can optimize store turnover. So again, is that obvious to you as a consumer? Well, it's obvious if you go in the store and you have the pro they have the product you need, but you don't know that AI is doing that. So my point is it's happening around us in much greater levels than it ever has before. Doesn't mean it always jumps into you. Understood. You talk about the trust factor a lot going forward. How important is that? You have to build your AI designed for trust. We built something called Watson OpenScale, which is about how you design your AI mm -hmm. to remove bias to have explainability of how AI is making decisions. That is so critical as organizations start to move to AI at scale because they're going to know how did the AI make the decision? Can I approve this to a regulator as an example? Am I comfortable with the decisions that are being made? So Watson is designed with trust at the core, which is pretty critical to anybody that wants to scale AI. Yeah, because Watson's had its own controversies, right, over the years. Look, we've made tremendous progress with Watson. In the last year, we've done 130 engagements with our data science elite team. IDC just ranked us number one in market share again. So Watson continues to dominate the AI landscape. One thing I found really interesting as well from you guys is being prescient about how you remain green. I know it's not obvious to everyone, but AI's appetite for energy is really colossal and it has potential to be so. You just explain that to everyone. AI, when you're getting to big models that are going to make you know big predictions or consistent predictions, it uses a lot of compute power. And so we've designed systems that are hyper-efficient in terms of the processing power, but also the green capabilities, basically energy efficient. That's a critical part as this evolves, because as you get companies that go really big into this, it could be a lot of energy consumption if you don't design it for a world where we can't afford to do that. I, we have to go out soon, but I want to ask you, we had that story about breast cancer screening there. In your work, that you do deal every day, uh, and someone who obviously cares about people, cares about the planet, are you excited about how transformative this will be in the next year, year or two? I am, absolutely. I mean, look at healthcare in the U.S. is, what, 19% of GDP? So we're not really getting a good return on our collective investments. We've had Watson Oncology in the market for years now, which is making huge strides in cancer. And everything we do each day can have a big impact. We've worked with Geisinger around sepsis care. So it's not just about cancer. It's about sure. any condition that humans are struggling with, AI can have a positive impact. And you're, you're confident in that? Absolutely. Okay, Rob, thanks so much and Thank Happy you. New Year. All right, we Happy New Year. It. And that does it for us here on First Move. Again, the first trading day of 2020. I am Paula Newton. I'll be right back here again tomorrow as you have a quick look at the markets there. Again, we are in rally mode, a good start to 2020. CNN Newsroom starts right after this short break. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta. 
host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.